Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from our studios in central London. I'm Julian Marshall. And we begin in the United States, which remains the epicentre of the coronavirus pandemic with nearly 129,000 deaths and which on Thursday reported a record 53,000 infections. Florida is a key focus of public health experts who worry about a surge in southern and western states. They're states that reopened the earliest and fastest after the pandemic struck and against the advice of federal authorities and are now experiencing the heaviest caseloads. Florida has been forced to reshut restaurants, bars and beaches as the nation braces for this July the 4th weekend. And the mayor of Miami-Dade County, Carlos A. Jimenez, has imposed a nighttime curfew beginning in a few hours, as he explained to me. Well, our doctors uh, relayed to me yesterday that uh, a lot of the cases that they're seeing are groups of people that have been socializing together. And so uh, we feel that um, one of the reasons we put the, uh, the the curfew was to stop the socialization, not only that we're happening in commercial establishments, but we're also happening in, in private homes. We feel that that's uh, one of the reasons why we've had this uptick in, uh, in, in the percentage of positives here in Miami-Dade. We saw a huge increase in positives of uh, people from the ages of uh, 18 to 34 and then 35 to 45, which I know, we know, has uh, led directly to the increase in hospitalizations here in Miami-Dade. But um, what a weekend to try to enforce a curfew. Yeah, it is. But before, prior to that, we had already closed the beaches from uh, today through the 6th. The beaches in Miami-Dade have been closed. I issued that order about a week ago, so everybody got ready. And we're imposing uh, new restrictions on the pools at the at the hotels. We have additional enforcement personnel. Our police department was advised uh, and said that they could handle uh, the curfew. And so, yes, we'll be we'll be doing the curfew. Not only Miami-Dade Police, but also municipal police departments. Uh, so people should be off the streets by ten o'clock, and people should be back in their homes by ten o'clock. And so, you know, it is it's it's always a a challenge to uh, to enforce, but it's something that we needed to do. And what about uh, bars, restaurants? Um, what's happening with those? Bars have been closed for a long time here. Uh, once I closed them back, I think I closed them back in April. They have not been open. Discotheques have not been open. Clubs have not been open. Restaurants are open, but uh, there are social distancing guidelines. We also issued new orders. And you used to be able to sit down and take off your mask uh, uh, when you're at the table. Now you can only take off your mask when you're ready to eat or drink. If you're sitting there talking, you have to put your mask back on. So there's a, there's a little wrinkle to the restaurants. But again, they also have to close before 10 o'clock because their patrons have to be home by 10 o'clock. Have you had any pushback from the hospitality sector, particularly ahead of this weekend? No. Uh, they, the, uh, the hotels understood why we had to do that, especially the beachfront, beachfront hotels had to do it. Uh, I mean, understood why we closed the beaches. I think people understand the, the reasons that we've come back a little bit is that uh, people were not listening to and abiding by the social distancing rules, the wearing of masks. Uh, we have, we've had a mask order here since April, uh, mandatory indoors, and it was 
mandatory outdoors if you cannot maintain a social distancing. But uh, we changed that to be, be all the time outdoors. We expect that to be enforced. We expect the people to comply. But again, you know, it's it's up to us to our own personal responsibility to keep each other safe. It worked very well until, unfortunately, I think we had uh, the the demonstrations. We had thousands of young people, you know, out and about. Um, a lot of them not wearing masks, and uh, and also we had graduations, and I think we had private parties, and we had some establishments that were uh, basically turning into de facto nightclubs, and so there was a, a huge uptick in uh, in young cases here which, uh, again, um, they infected their parents and their grandparents, and so we've had this uptick also in hospitalizations. We have sufficient capability, capacity right now, but I just don't want to get anywhere close to the point where we we're, we start to run out. I mean, would you like to see the wearing of masks uh, mandatory statewide? My understanding is that uh, the, the governor is uh, reluctant to go down that uh, road for the moment. It's a big state and a really varied uh, state. It's not uniform. And we have been stricter than the rest of the state. And even though we have been stricter than the rest of the state, our rates are still higher. Uh, It's probably because of the density that we have down here. Did the economy reopen too soon in in Florida, in your view, in retrospect? No, I don't think so. I think that uh, the demonstrations, uh, we had thousands of kids. that, That had something to do with it. Graduation time, that had something to do with it. I also think that uh, when the news media started to focus on the demonstrations and went away from coronavirus, I think that a lot of people thought that maybe the coronavirus problem was over and let their guard down. I mean, I appreciate, sir, that your position of mayor of Miami-Dade counties is a nonpartisan one. Nonetheless, uh, you are a member of the Republican Party. And I just wondered whether you had a view at all about the um, handling of the coronavirus uh, pandemic at a federal level by your Republican president? Well, look, the, uh, the uh, most of the responsibility falls on, on the governors and the mayors. I think the, the president task force has uh, given us the best information and have given us as much many of the resources that we need here in order to beat uh, the COVID-19. So, no, I have no problems with the federal response. But has the president and, himself taken it seriously enough, do you think? Oh, I, I, believe, oh, I believe so. I mean, the president uh, was criticized initially for, you know, shutting down uh, flights from China into the United States and trying to hold, hold, it, hold it back. And so I think he's taken it uh, very seriously. But again, you know, it's personal responsibility of each American to follow the rules if we all do that then we can start to reduce the incidence of positive and the incidence of infection. The mayor of Miami-Dade County in Florida, Carlos Jimenez. Well, although the United States is experiencing a record rise in infections and hospitalizations and has the highest number of deaths from coronavirus in the world, President Trump has tweeted that there was great news. The death rate was down. His critics, including an increasing number from within his own party, say such statements are symptomatic of the president's detachment, even callousness about the scale of the pandemic in the United States and his preoccupation with reopening the economy and gaining re-election. Mr. Trump is still refusing to wear a mask despite a number of Republican government's states making it mandatory. While last month he held a campaign rally in Tulsa, contrary to official guidelines on mass gatherings. I've been speaking to Chris Ruddy, a friend of Donald Trump and CEO of the pro-Trump media organization Newsmax. What rating out of 10 would he give the president for his handling of the pandemic? I think he's done an outstanding job. I think it's an eight or nine. 
If you look at two things, one is the number of actual deaths, they have fallen really dramatically and they keep going down. This is really important. This is a flu-like virus. It's not going to disappear. It may be with us for a while. So if we can manage it better, which the death rate is indicating, I think that's a good thing. You're getting an increasing number of infections and hospitalizations, and they are the precursor, oftentimes, to death. Well, we're not seeing that yet. I mean, the death rate hasn't gone up dramatically. There's been a lot of, I would say, hanky-panky with some of the numbers. First of all, they're doing a lot more testing in the United States, so they're finding a lot more cases. Also, there's a reopening going on, especially younger people. They're saying the younger people are going out mixing. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. The data shows that for people under 60 that are healthy, this is like the flu. So they're gaining herd immunity. And if this is going to be a chronic problem, it's probably better they get the virus sooner than later to develop that immunity while they're in good health. The other thing is they'll say there's a hospital crisis in America. Well, it turns out most of the people in the hospitals are people now coming back to the hospitals that were not allowed in the hospitals or coming back for other medical issues. And then they're adding in the virus people saying there's a hospital issue, but it's not all coronavirus people. And they seem to be managing the care much better where they used to put people on ventilators right away. They're not doing that. Setting aside the medical debate as to whether or not contracting the coronavirus uh, will give you immunity in the future, will his handling of the pandemic have an impact, do you think, on his re-election chances in November? I think it's going to be largely about that issue. There's four months to go. One is how he deals with the virus issue. Unlike other countries where Britain, you have a national health care system, we don't have anything like that in the United States. The president doesn't manage the health care of Americans directly in the United States. And there's 50 governors and their state systems, private health care systems. They can set policy advice. They can set guidelines, good examples, but they don't direct. So this is not like in the purview normally of a president to manage direct health care. But I think that there is a sense that things are improving, even though the virus count in terms of cases is going up. During the coronavirus pandemic, the U.S. economy has tanked. And of course, the economy has always been President Trump's strong suit. How does he get over that come November? It's going to be very difficult. The public knows that he's not responsible for the virus, the lockdowns, et cetera, and the economic collapse. Now, the question is, what is he doing since then? He has been doing stimulus and other things that I think generally have been very helpful. The stock market seems to like what he's doing, and the economy is hanging in there. The question is, is it, is it enough? Uh, my view is the U.S. economy went into cardiac arrest. The money they put into stimulus has been hyper-focused into the business community, not with consumers. I believe that the stimulus needed to be much more. They should do a, like a $5 trillion stimulus to revive the U.S. economy. And uh, we are seeing signs of it coming back to life, but I'm not sure that this is going to be a straight-up V-shaped recovery. Like I'm sitting in Manhattan right now looking outside the windows of my office, and it looks like a deserted city. And this is a Friday. It's a holiday weekend, but it's still a Friday in New York. It's like empty city, and it's a ghost town. And you wonder... You know, people are talking about not coming back to work at all this year, which is, in, in my mind, insane.
insane. And then cities across the country, people are planning on that. How are you going to revive an economy if people aren't going back to work? If the businesses that thrive on those uh, larger businesses aren't in business, the whole thing could fall apart. I mean, the opinion polls, um, you have to admit, aren't looking too good for President Trump at the moment in this contest with Joe Biden. How is he going to turn that around in four months? I actually, Julian, like the numbers. I'd like the president to be slightly behind. I think Donald Trump psychologically does really, really well when he's behind. I don't think he's far behind, as the polls suggest. There's a long history, I don't want to go into all the details, of the polls always being sort of exaggerated in favor of the Democrats. And one of the reasons is the polls now are based on registered voters, not likely voters. A good number of people, anywhere from 30 to 50, 40 percent of the country don't vote on Election Day. But if you get all the registered voters, they tend to oversample Democrats. And that's why those polls are always skewed. That was uh, Chris Ruddy, a friend of Donald Trump and CEO of the pro-Trump media organization Newsmax. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. Still to come, as the economic crisis in Lebanon continues to worsen, we'll speak to some people who are giving up and leaving the country. I've been living here for 10 years, and now we're leaving back to Australia. Economic crisis, everything that's happening in Lebanon. It's crazy. We couldn't even find dollars to, to exchange the money to travel. Do you think there is a future here? I don't know. I hope so. I think it's going to take a long time. It's going to be very long before uh, it goes back to normal. And that report from Lebanon in full later in this edition of News Hour, the latest headlines from the BBC Newsroom. France has launched an inquiry into the outgoing government's handling of the coronavirus crisis as a new prime minister takes charge. And Brazil's president, who's consistently played down the severity of the virus, has made it compulsory to wear masks in public, but has vetoed their use in shops, schools and churches. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Julian Marshall, and this is NewsHour. South Africa's government is warning of a devastating storm as coronavirus infections start to rise steeply. At present, the highest concentration of infections in Africa is found in South Africa's Western Cape province, particularly in the poor townships around Cape Town. Andrew Harding has this report. It helps to open your lungs and everything. And then you need to sit down and then you breathe in. And then you breathe out. In her fluffy pink slippers and dressing gown, Lusanda Jonas is going through her exercises in her front yard, in the shadow of Table Mountain. I think I'm done. It was early last month that the 46-year-old secretary felt the first symptoms of COVID-19. Soon she was in an ambulance in a city grappling with a sudden surge of infections. They've called numerous actually hospitals and it was full. So there was no bed, nothing. So they, have they found one eventually and after two weeks in intensive care, she was sent home just yesterday, well on the mend, but shocked by the changes in her neighbourhood. Let me tell you something. Even the streets that I am staying at as we speak right now, I think we have lost about six people died because of this COVID. So that is the only thing that makes the other people scared. Then people, they must start to understand that COVID, it is here. 
And here, in force. A few streets away, this cavernous sports hall has now been converted into a field hospital. Good morning, Portia. So we're going to help you turn onto the stomach now to help the lungs breathe. The bed's on the basketball court are already full. It spread it like wildfire, and today you have uh, more than 5,500 cases in this township. Dr Eric Gomer is running this facility for the medical charity MSF. He says the staff are already having to make tough decisions. The ones who are coming here, they are severe. Some progress to critical stage. There is no point to send them back to the referral hospital because they don't have the staff nor the capacity to deal with it. So put them in palliative care. In it's a tough words, decision. Except yeah. that they may die. Yes, exactly. That's what is happening. And that's because you lack resources here. Yeah. Just across the road, the township's main hospital is facing additional challenges linked to poverty and underlying health issues. Dr Ayanda Trevor-Mguni is in charge here. There's been an explosion of undiagnosed diabetics who are now being diagnosed as a result of COVID. Uh, and the majority of our nurses are, are, are themselves patients who've got diabetes and hypertension. Uh, they themselves are getting infected and they themselves need to go home and need to be quarantined. So that again puts a huge strain on the system. And then there's the lockdown. The principal of the local nursery school is now running a soup kitchen instead, and she's swamped. I'm Theodora Lutuli. We are busy preparing lunch for the community, and our menu today is Sam and beans. It's actually our staple food, you know, at it's home. It's maize meal. It's maize meal. Enough to feed? Between 500 and 1,000, oh. easily. And the numbers are going up or down? And the numbers keep on escalating. Dozens of elderly locals are already queuing outside. I told them hungry. And we've got no money to buy food. Yet one minute a day. My worry and my focus always is the children and the elderly because I, I always worry that some of these elderly people, they, they are alone. But I must be honest, what we've experienced during the spirit is everyone trying to help. An encouraging sign. And South Africa will need more of that as the virus now surges from here towards other, even poorer and less well-prepared cities. Andrew Harding with that report from Cape Town. The remains of 24 Algerians who fought against French occupation in the 19th century have been returned to Algeria from France. They've been kept at a museum in Paris. The Algerian president, Tebounet, said they were heroes of the resistance against French colonialism who'd been deprived of their natural right to be buried more than 170 years. Lina Benabdullah is a US-based Algerian academic. She told me how the remains came to be in France. The story goes back to the 1840s with a anti-colonial resistance movement, uh, which was um, essentially uh, located near city of Biskra in an oasis called Zacha, which is now sort of the name of the resistance. After four months of siege, basically the French army essentially won the, the battle and went to um, essentially killing all the villagers who lived in Zacha in this oasis. And the fighters, uh, Sheikh Bouzian being the leader of this resistance, were taken uh, uh, into prison with his son and, and other followers. And then later on, they were 
were decapitated. And uh, basically their heads were uh, first shown in a market in the city of Biskra, essentially to sort of squash other movements of resistance or potential movements of resistance and instill fear in people. And then later on, the skulls were transported back to France as war trophies, and they ended up in a museum in Paris. And how we came to know their whereabouts is actually through a uh, researcher, a scholar, an anthropologist, historian, scholar from Algeria who was doing research in France and just doing archival research, trying to learn more about the stories of these anti-colonial resistance leaders. Then he came across a collection of essentially of, of skulls uh, that were displayed in the museum. And So the, the skulls were actually on display, were they? Yeah, they were. What were they described as in, in the museum? They were in boxes, in small boxes, and the boxes had numbers. And so you would see a number in front of every skull. It just They just had numbers. In fact, they didn't even have names or they were not recognized. And the number of skulls is, is really, basically is really high. And in this study, this historian looked at the 68 skulls, 24 of which came back. And some of them were leaders of colonial resistance. Others were people, villagers, etc. There were no names to them. The pictures we see from the museum are boxes that had just numbers. And so they were just essentially just displayed there as human remains and not as their names attached to them or who they were or where they were coming from or what they symbolised. Had the Algerians been asking for these remains to be returned for a long time? They have. There have been negotiations and talks about this since um, early 2011-12 and up until basically I think in 2017 is when uh, some movement on these negotiations. And, and, and there were also particular I should say, by a lot of intellectuals and historians, both French and Algerian, to boost these negotiations. And then in 2017, French President Macron had announced that France was ready to finally repatriate and send these human remains home. What was there to negotiate, though? I mean, these are the human remains of Algerians that needed to be returned to Algeria for burial. It's been a question that's been lingering in the relations between Algeria and France for a long time. And it has to do with torture and it has to do with the trauma of colonialism. It has to do with sort of, you know, these claims that somehow colonialism ends on Independence Day, you know, are basically sort of bogus claims and that sort of the traumas of colonialism can stay on for generations. And for France to go ahead and actually release and allow for these human remains to come home opens up a bit of this chapter on what happened, what is the story. And the story is a story of torture. It's a story of human crimes against humanity. It's just, it's not a story that you want to sort of, that French governments or politicians are ready to, to talk about and discuss. That was uh, Lina Ben-Abdullah, an assistant professor of politics and international affairs at Wake Forest University in the United States. Do stay with us here on NewsHour. A lot more to come in the next 30 minutes. This week, Lebanon's only airport partially reopened following a three-month shutdown. Due to the coronavirus, the country's prime minister called on Lebanese expatriates to visit and bring U.S. dollars with them. The desperate plea came as Lebanon grapples with the worst economic crisis in its modern history. The country's currency has collapsed and huge numbers of people have lost their jobs. And, as Martin Patience now reports from Beirut Airport, many Lebanese 
want to leave. There are more than 20 porters here, all wearing blue uniforms. These men all make money from tips, and for the past three and a half months, they haven't made anything. One car's just pulled in to the terminal. I'm going to see if I can speak to them. Hi there. We've got uh, two young kids yep. and the mother, I'm presuming? Yes, yes. And what's your name? Welinda. Where are you off to today? Australia. Are you Lebanese? No, I'm Lebanese and I've been living here for 10 years and now we're leaving back to Australia. Why are you leaving? Economic crisis, everything that's happening in Lebanon. It's crazy. We couldn't even find dollars to, to exchange the money to travel. How did you find the dollars to pay for the tickets? We had to find, like, friends and family. Everyone gave us little bits and pieces. Do you think there is a future here? I don't know. I hope so. I think it's going to take a long time. It's going to be very long before uh, it goes back to normal. The economic collapse here has been truly staggering. I've never seen a country fall so hard, so fast. The government is predicting that half of all businesses in Lebanon could go bust by the end of the year. The political situation is very bad. You know, warlords are our leaders. So what do you imagine will happen? Rami's heading to work in Afghanistan. He doesn't have much hope for Lebanon. It's the, the Lebanese people problem, you know. Every election they do the same. They like the same people. And we ended here, you know. Religious leaders are leading us. So there is no national spirit. Excuse me, sir. I'm from the BBC, BBC News. Why are you leaving today? Uh, I'm resident in Dubai. I came here uh, for vacation and I got stuck uh, until the airport uh, opened now. Are you glad to be leaving? Yes and no. I'm, uh, I'm happy because I have a job, good income. At the same time, I'm sad because uh, I'm leaving my family behind. So uh, it's my country. Are you worried about what might happen here? Yes, but we have faith. Faith yeah. in what? Faith in who? You're the first person that said to me they, they have faith. Faith in ourselves, first of all, and in God. But not the government? Unfortunately not. That report from Martin Patience at Beirut Airport. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Julian Marshall and this is NewsR. Hong Kong's experiment in democracy came to an abrupt end this week when the government in Beijing reasserted its control over this Chinese semi-autonomous territory. That experiment began 23 years ago when the British colony was returned to China with an agreement that guaranteed such rights as the freedom of expression and assembly and an independent judiciary. But China has slowly encroached on those freedoms and pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong have pushed back, taking to the streets in their hundreds of thousands last year, and it all came to an end on Tuesday with the promulgation of a new security law by Beijing, which was used today to charge a protester with secession and terrorism. Nathan Law is a long-standing pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong who's maintained links with foreign governments, but he's now fled the territory. 
Was it, I asked him, a difficult decision? Well, yes, definitely. It's, it's both uh, difficult and uh, very emotional because leaving the place that you love, that you spend most of your life with, and all the connections, families, and even your, your pets, you have to leave them behind so that you could do a work outside Hong Kong. I've been through a serious contemplation, but for me, it's more than a personal choice. It's like a responsibility and duty towards the movement. Especially in this critical time, I think we need a public figure doing international advocacy work on an international level. So that is pretty much the impetus behind my move. Do you at any time reflect on the protests and maybe think that you went too far? Arguably, there were too many of them, that the protests became anarchic on a number of occasions. There was destruction of public property. Uh, there was the invasion of the Legislative Council building. Did the protests get out of control, in your view? Well, I think we have to understand why these occasions happened. At the very beginning, the, the movement was completely peaceful. But if you look at the past year, none of the police officers are held accountable for all the misbehaviors that they have done. For example, shooting a barehanded youngster, um, like riding into the crowd with their motorcycle. So for me, um, the corruption of the system made people frustrated and furious. So I think the problem is the government has been avoiding taking responsibility. And that is the major problem what caused so much anger inside the crowd. You clearly believe that you are going to be able to continue to be an effective advocate for the rights of the people in Hong Kong, even though you are going to be outside the country. But isn't the truth, and this has been the experience of others, that your voice will get quieter? I think um, being relevant or being prominent is not the thing I'm asking for. For me, it is important that I could contribute in the part of the movement. And if the crowd recognise what I have been doing, then there will be support. But isn't the reality now, Nathan, that China really doesn't care what the rest of the world thinks and that the rest of the world also is increasingly reluctant to take a strong line with China? Well, I think the international community actually turns much more assertive compared to a couple of years before in terms of Chinese issue. If you look at the numbers of the countries offering safe boats planned to Hong Kong, including possibly UK, Australia, Taiwan, or even the US, then you, you realize that actually uh, the breach of the standard British declaration and the crisis in Hong Kong is well recognized by the global community. And for me, I think it is important to tell the world that we should value human rights over trade issue when, we, when you deal with China, because that is not something that is only confined in Hong Kong. So I think it, it, it's definitely a long road ahead. I'm not saying that we will get the democracy in the near future. It, it will be a decades project. We have to hang on and be persist and spread the words to the world. What's the future for Hong Kong, though, in the meantime? Well, I think the resistance movement has to go on, and it will. If you look at uh, the protests on the very first day of the implementation of national security law, 
then you could see that like there were hundreds of thousands of people marching down to the street with the risk of being imprisoned for years. And these people are courageous and they have not given up. And I think for us, we needed to continue our struggle in order to really pile up the international pressure. And we cannot assume that China will be as strong as before or now, because China, they, they also face so much domestic and international problem. And Nathan, where would you eventually like to settle? Might you, for instance, take advantage of um, British national overseas status or BNO, which gives you the right to settle in the UK? Well, first of all, I, I'm quite surprised that there are a majority of the population supporting the BNO issue. The UK citizens realise that, um, yeah, there, there are actually a bunch of people that share their same values and fight against of the Tarian country. And me, myself, I don't have BNO, and my future is very volatile. Fleeing is not something that you could easily plan. So for me, I will reconsider every situation and hope that I could find a path that I, that allows me to continue my advocacy work. That is Nathan Law, a long-standing pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong who's now fled the territory. The longer the coronavirus pandemic lingers, the more scientists are learning about the disease, what was initially thought to be a very severe respiratory illness which could kill is now known to cause a much wider range of symptoms and to cause long-term damage to the lungs, the liver, the kidneys and the heart. And then there's the effect of COVID-19 on the brain, not only on recovered patients, but those being treated in hospital. There's already a condition known as hospital delirium, previously seen in older patients, some of whom already have dementia. But now this delirium is being seen in coronavirus patients of all ages, with no previous cognitive impairment. Kim Victory was a coronavirus patient in Tennessee who suffered from delirium. We brought her together with uh, Dr. Wes Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, who's made a study of it. Delirium is a situation where the brain is no longer able to stay focused and the person cannot pay attention. They lose their ability to organize their thinking and they have variations in their level of consciousness. Most people just think it's confusion, and that confusion is really delirium. They do not have to be hallucinating to be delirious. And is the delirium that uh, some COVID-19 patients have displayed typical of the delirium that you've encountered before? Here at Vanderbilt in Nashville, I've been studying delirium for 20 years, and it's typical but more intense and lasts longer. This COVID-related delirium is an absolute epidemic within the disease, and it's going to leave a lot of people with some pretty profound cognitive difficulties over the months and years of their survival. Kim, let's hear your experience when you were hospitalized uh, with coronavirus and uh, experienced delirium. How did it feel? What did you see? At first, I thought I just were dreaming. So I was dreaming that I were paralyzed on the bed and be burning alive. I tried to get out of bed, but I couldn't. Then a nurse came in and tried to help me get out of the burning building. The second one, I was 
feeling really cold and I see myself as a ice sculpture with a weird mask on my face and I try to get the mask out of my face. And then when the nurse came and gave me some medicine, I told them, I am American. I have the right to eat cheeseburger and drink Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, in the real life, I don't even like either one. Dr. Ely, how typical are the symptoms that Kim is describing there of other patients that you've treated suffering from delirium? These symptoms that Miss Victory is describing are very, very typical. She had some pretty profound auditory and visual hallucinations. But as I said earlier, that's not the major thing that makes it delirium. She was completely unable to pay attention and stay focused. And her brain cells, millions and millions of her brain cells, were simply not able to operate and process what was actually happening. And what we know is that these brain cells, many of them go on to not be able to survive and we actually see that the longer somebody's delirious, the more they actually lose volume in their brain so that their brain is actually physically smaller months and years down the line. And this translates into a problem with memory and the ability to do executive function like lists and tasks in your job later on down in your life. And it's very, very disabling for people both during the event, as she just described, and afterwards because during the event, it's traumatic, harrowing, a nightmare, literally. And then later on, to process all of that and understand it, people oftentimes develop post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and depression. And I know it's hard for Kim to hear me saying these things, but we're going to work with her in our center here at Vanderbilt and just do whatever we can to help her and the other survivors put the pieces back together and recover completely. And Kim, you have found that you have been very unwell even after being discharged from hospital and uh, unwell both physically and mentally. Yeah. So when I discharged from the hospital, I have to learn to walk because I lost so much muscle mass. It's very difficult for me to get out from the chair and walk to the bathroom or just into the kitchen to get something to ring. I have shortening of breath and it's very difficult. When I walk like that, it's just a short distance, but my heart rate is way up high. It could go to like 120 at the time. And then I couldn't sleep. I felt like I smelling cigarette or wood burning, but apparently there's no one around me smoking or burning wood. When I got home, I just feel really scared of the dark. I have no explanation for that. So my doctor have to get me some antidepressant and some sleeping pill to try to help me sleep. Dr. Ely, it's extraordinary, isn't it? The coronavirus, you know, when it was first identified, seemed to be a respiratory illness and that nobody could have imagined at the time how debilitating, both physically and mentally, it was going to be for some patients. Absolutely. You can hear Kim in her description of her survivorship the amount of difficulty she's having. And I think, Julian, we have to globally consider this a public health disaster for all of these patients and as well for the families. That was Dr. Wes Ely, Professor of Medicine at uh, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. We also have from Kim Victory, a coronavirus patient who suffered from delirium. Do stay with us here on NewsHour. We'll be hearing from a black survivor of the desegregation of schools in the U.S. state of Arkansas.
And a reminder of our top story this hour here on NewsHour. Public health experts in the United States are worried about a continuing surge of coronavirus cases in southern and western states. Florida has been forced to reshut restaurants, bars and beaches during this July the 4th weekend. The mayor of Miami-Dade County, Carlos Jimenez, told us why he's just had to impose a nighttime curfew. Our doctors relayed to me yesterday that uh, a lot of the cases that they're seeing are groups of people that have been socializing together. One of the reasons we put the curfew was to stop the socialization, not only that were happening in commercial establishments, but were also happening in private homes. And the latest headline from the BBC Newsroom. France has launched an inquiry into the outgoing government's handling of the coronavirus crisis as a new prime minister takes charge. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Julian Marshall, and this is NewsHour. And let's take a look now at the history of race relations in the United States and how that affects what's happening in the country at the present time. It was in 1954 that America's Supreme Court ruled that segregation in schools was illegal. But it was some time before there was any attempt to make that a reality in the southern states, The first place to do so was Little Rock in Arkansas. The BBC's former North America's editor, Mark Mardell, has been speaking to Elizabeth Eckford, one of nine children who was at the centre of it all. A picture, they say, is worth a thousand words. This is the story of one which prompted many more than that. This is Little Rock Central High School. Provoked Louis Armstrong to rage and bathed much of America in shame. A story of hatred and segregation, reconciliation, and why the word sorry is not nearly enough. The photographer on that day, September the 4th, 1957, was 26 year old Will Counts. It was a few days before I was born, prompting me to wonder how much changes in a lifetime. It's taken outside Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas as nine black children attempted to join 2,000 white pupils, the first real breach in the laws which forced blacks and whites to have separate lives, separate schools. This girl here was the first Negro, apparently, of high school age to show up at Central High School the day that the federal court ordered it integrated. Center Frame is a pretty black girl in sunglasses who at least looks composed, mouth-set, dignified and determined. She's Elizabeth Eckford, right behind her, uncomfortably close, a crowd of protesters. I, I, I was a terrified 15-year-old kid, and I was silent because I didn't want to cry openly in front of other people. Are you going to go to school here at uh, Central High? You don't care to say anything, is that right? That's why I didn't respond to the reporter's questions. And I kept walking because I was determined to get to where I thought there, there would be a way away from there. I was going to another bus stop, and I fastened in my mind that, that, that I would be safe when I got to that place and that I could get away without being injured. Elizabeth, now 78, spoke to me from her home in Little Rock, the same house where she set out from on that long-ago morning to face an angry mob. One other face stands out from that crowd, mouth open, screaming. She too is a girl of 15, Hazel Bryan. I want to say her face is contorted with hatred, but in truth she could be at an Elvis concert or a football game. But her words were hateful. Of course, that pernicious, insulting name from the days of slavery. 
and at that very moment captured on celluloid, Hazel is apparently yelling, go back to Africa. I heard the racial slurs, I heard the threats. I heard someone saying, get a rope, let's lynch her. Hemming in Elizabeth, very close to her shoulder, two battle axes in floral dresses. I had been brought up to look to adults if I needed help. And so I I looked around and I, and I saw a woman who I thought had a kind face. And I turned toward her. The woman spat at her. So I, I just, I felt totally alone. I felt like there was no help. None of the nine got into school that day, but the picture flashed around the world, telling the ugly story of the South, turning racist stereotypes on their head, the noble black girl beset by a bestial, savage white mob. Radio Moscow gloated. Louis Armstrong played an angry version of the national anthem and said his country could go to hell. An advert in the Arkansas Gazette declared, Study this picture and no shame. Many did. President Eisenhower sent in a thousand troops. And by the end of September, the nine did get into the school, and that was that. Except it wasn't. There were some things that happened repeatedly, being body slammed against wall lockers. People attempted to knock us down stairs, and the stairs are metal and concrete inside the school. When I worked in the States for the BBC, President Obama was in the White House. Race was often centre stage, and I often thought about that photograph reflecting that those white protesters most likely had children, grandchildren, who were probably still around, still voting, still... still what? That was my question. Harbouring hidden hatred? Making amends? Hazel and Elizabeth are not actors in a drama. They're real people with awkward, messy lives. One day in 1963, Hazel, now married, now Hazel Massery, made a telephone call. My grandfather had a neighborhood grocery store and was listed in the phone book, so she had contacted him. He felt that I should talk to her, and so that was the reason that I accepted her call. She needed to be forgiven. Things were changing. Forty years ago, a single image first seared the heart and stirred the conscience of our nation. One 11-year-old Arkansas boy who credited that photograph for inspiring a lifelong passion for equality became governor of the state, then president of the USA. And in the image, we caught a very disturbing glimpse of ourselves. It was only in 1997, the 40th anniversary, that Hazel and Elizabeth met on the instigation of that photographer, Will Counts. She wanted to be known, and she wanted to be known as a different person. Hazel spoke about her contrition. The crowd was jeering, and I followed in with the crowd. I've learned that that was not right, the prejudices because of a person's skin. And for a couple of years, they were friends, real friends. Unlike the photo itself, this is not, forgive me, black and white. Elizabeth believes there's been a lot of change in Little Rock, but not in every heart. I think a lot of them don't don't acknowledge it, and a lot of them seem to not understand what is in front of them. And the sharp divide that existed on the day that you walked into that school, that is perhaps in the past, do you think? There are still challenges. There are still people who do not believe that everybody is entitled to equal access. There's still a feeling among some people that there are people who are more deserving than others. 17 years ago, Elizabeth's own son, Erin, was shot dead by police. She told me he was extremely depressed, and when he fired shots from a rifle, he wanted to die, wanted the police to kill him. She refused to make a political issue out of it, and that, she said, made some people very angry but she does think the police in general need to change and welcomes this year's protests. Political and social change is is evolutionary. 
and has fits and starts and stops, and it's not a smooth trajectory. If you consider the beginning of slavery was more than 400 years ago, there has been a lot of change. I can't predict when there will be full equality, but I'm very hopeful. I'm more hopeful now because there's greater awareness of the struggles that we have, much greater awareness than it has ever been. And do you think the recent protests show that awareness? Oh, yes, because it's not a black protest. It's a protest involving multi-ethnicities, and it's international now. Elizabeth Thackford talking to Mark Mardell. And um, Mark will be back tomorrow to look at the role that music has played in the civil rights movement. A change is going to come. That's it from this edition of News Hour. From me, Julian Marshall, and the rest of the team in London. Goodbye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.